When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruah, said to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace, but deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother. And there is also with you Shimei the son of Gera, and Benjaminite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with a sword. Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Thank, this is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, once again, it's good to be with you. I'm grateful to be with you and also to open the scriptures once again this week. If you're new to North Cross, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, if uh, you've been here before or it's, it's, you've been here a lot of different times, we're also really glad to be with you and we're glad you're here. Um, and we can hope you can hang around afterwards a little bit with us and, uh, and chat. This morning's sermon is actually the last in a series uh, that we've been doing for about a year. I looked it up. It's about a week from the day last year that we started, 1 Samuel 16. Um, and we've been looking at the life of David as told in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and now 1 Kings. And uh, maybe we're at different places with this series. Uh, my guess is when you end a series, you usually are. Some of you are very ready to move on. Uh, you've been ready to move on for a long time. Uh, and others of you are feeling nostalgic already. Uh, you know, you're nostalgic for that 3,000-year-old Iron Age king named David. Um, and then others of you are, are saying, whoa, I just got here. I'm new to this, new to the series, new to North Cross. Um, but regardless of where you are with David's life, I do think it bears repeating why we spent a year with David and, and, and maybe why he's got so, much, so many books by him or about him in the scriptures. So why spend a year with one man so, from so long ago? I'm gonna give three reasons, of course, right? That's what we do as preachers, three reasons. Uh, but the sermon will only be two points, so just take heart. Uh, so three reasons. First, to understand the scriptures God's given us, uh, we needed to understand who David is. So 
David's name is mentioned roughly 1,000 times in the Bible. Um, that's only 300 short of Jesus. Uh, this is because David is, is not just Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the son of David's ancestor. It's because there's something about David's life that points to and explains better who Jesus is. The second reason we've looked at uh, the life of David is to behold Jesus more fully. We needed to see the specific life and times of his forerunner, David. That's to say the story of David, or sorry, the story of Jesus, excuse me, begins much, much earlier than we typically think it does in the New Testament. We need to look back to the Old Testament and we need to look back at least as far as a thousand years before his birth with the roots of David, with the branch known as David, the son of Jesse, the branch of Jesus. And then there's a third and final reason to look at uh, and spend so much time with David. He teaches us what it means to actually live the human life and follow after God. David teaches us what it means to be human and to live this life in so many different familiar places and spaces and roles that we play on a daily basis. I mean, David's a warrior and a poet. He's an outlaw, then a lawgiver. He's a shepherd and a king. He's a often faithful young man. He's an often faithless older man. He's a son, a brother, a friend, an enemy, and a father. And so David of Bethlehem shows us in so many of these different familiar ways how to follow God well and how to follow God not so well, right? And so we see this, David is both a man after God's own heart, but he's also a royal mess. That rings a bell for me because we feel those, right? We feel these imperfect successes, these colossal failures, and they remind us that once again, David's life is meant to point to someone greater than David. It's meant to point to God, the son of David, and the God after our own hearts, Jesus Christ. So um, before we step back into the life of David, um, I'd like to take a moment just to, to catch ourselves up, catch our breaths, and pray. So let's pray together. Father, um, would, you, would you find us, like we just sang, wherever we are? And maybe it feels like a wide and spacious place, and maybe it feels like a dark and, and narrow valley. But Lord, I pray that you would meet us there. Um, would you meet us in our doubt and our confusion? Would you meet us in our joy and pleasure? Uh, would you meet us somewhere in between? And would you change us by meeting us? Would you help us to see you in ways that we've not seen you before, Jesus, in your scriptures? Would you open the eyes of our hearts, Jesus, and would you be more believable and beautiful? Would you be high and lifted up? Would you change us? by encountering you. Don't let us leave this room the same people. Work through your word, and we plead that promise by your spirit back to you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So if you Google the phrase famous last words, um, you will get a My Chemical Romance song. I found that out firsthand. But then you will also, after that, get a roughly 1,470,000,000 hits and Google. And then they'll usually feature a famous person saying something either kind of deep and premeditated or spontaneous and playful, oftentimes in their deathbed. And if you've lost a friend or a loved one, you know that feeling that uh, these Google searches are going after, which is searching for memories or, or what feels like pieces of wisdom that they left you near the end of their lives. Really, this kind of overwhelming popularity and significance uh, of last words points to this human desire to look for words to live by. 
Words to Live By, by the way, if you Google search it, has 2 billion, uh, 210 million search results roughly. And so we're, but basically the whole point of this is to say we're looking for someone to tell us how to live our lives, all of us. And not just anyone, but like a wise life expert, hence one of the best sellers like Tuesdays with Maury or Randy Pausch's The Last Lecture or best of all, like a wise, caring parent. And some of us are parents in this room, but all of us are always someone's child. And so there's a way in which the scene in our passage this morning with David on his deathbed, calling his son over for one last conversation, giving Solomon these last words to live by, that pushes some internal desire buttons for every single one of us in this room. Some of us are asking, what would I say to my children? Or what has my life said to my children? Others of us are asking, all of us are asking, do I know what my mom and dad would say is the most important thing in life? Do I know what my parents wanted most for me or want most for me? Of all the possible places that my mind and heart could have gone looking at this passage this week, I found it resting in a very weird place with a TV show uh, that aired for multiple seasons. I only watched a few episodes of called House MD. Um, I'm going to explain why in a second. Uh, by the way, does, if everyone's familiar with House MD, like it's this like expert, uh, brilliant but prickly to deal with doc, emergency doctor who solves all these kind of uh, very rare medical diseases and then yet somehow stumbles through and bumbles uh, basic relationships and life survival skills. That's sort of the premise of uh, House MD. And the episode that I kept returning to is called Daddy's Boy from season two. In this episode, Dr. House, we'll just call him House like they do in the show, successfully solves yet another weirdly uh, life-threatening odd disease in the ER, but he also unsuccessfully avoids his mother and father on a rare visit to see him. We can only find out at the episode's end why House has tried so hard not to actually engage with his parents. And the real problem is what his parents want most for House, he can't do. What they want most for him, he can't do. You see, House is extremely successful. He's a highly sought after emergency doctor. But what his parents have said in not so many words, what they want most for his life is to just be happy. Just be happy. And this is why House avoids his parents and he feels like a big disappointment. Despite all of his amazing career successes, he's miserable most of the time. But House MD is a kind of a product of our cultural moment, isn't it? Down to what parents want for their children. So it both expresses and it shapes what our first instinct is. We want us and everyone around us to just be happy. And while that's not necessarily a bad thing, in fact, I'd argue it's a good impulse, like pursuing certain kinds of success, it's also certainly not the most important thing in life. So notice our, in our passage this morning, King David's last words, his words to live by. They are not Solomon. Do whatever it takes to make you happy. That's an almost impossible command. That's a recipe for disappointment. How do I not feel anxious about not feeling happier? How, do I, how am I not depressed when I'm not happy enough? What is happy enough? 
And we also have to ask, is there more to the universe than my personal satisfaction? And perhaps this is why David gives his son Solomon very different words to live by. Directions that are difficult, but lead to a life well lived. They are possible, they are measurable, and bigger than an internal sense of well-being. David tells Solomon how to grow up to be a wise and mature man. Walk in God's ways and deal decisively with the evil all around you. And these are God's fatherly words for us through David. Be a wise and mature man or woman. And so we must walk in God's good ways and deal decisively with the evil outside of us and within us. But these words will also lead to our disappointment if we do not look to Jesus. And so for the strength to walk and to deal with what's difficult, we need Jesus. And we need Jesus as the goal of our lives. So we can divide David's last words into two main ideas here. And this is, by the way, just the outline. This morning for your sermon, it's projected behind me. It's also in your e-bulletin. First, verses one through four, God tells all his children through David, mature men and women obey God's ways while trusting in Jesus's strength. And second, verses five through 12, David tells all his children through David, wise men and women deal decisively with evil while trusting in Jesus as the goal. As usual, we're gonna begin with the beginning and we're gonna look at verses one through four and what obeying God's ways actually really means. Because <laughs> that's really a big picture, big topic. If you look at verses one and two of your passage, there you see our scene. David, King David is now just David. He's a frail, fading old man about to die. In his words, go the way of all the earth. David's a human dad giving his human son some last words to live by. And from the beginning, David goes straight for the heart. Be strong and show yourself a man. Ugh, David, honestly. That, I mean, doesn't that tap into every insecurity? I know it taps into every insecurity I have, let alone most of us in this room have, right? And for the record, I'm fairly sure if David had brought his daughter to his bedside, he would have said, hey, by the way, show yourself a woman. Okay, so what he's doing there is he's putting our entire emotional deep down lives on a hot seat. <laughs> but notice how David defines strength and he defines masculinity and femininity for that matter. Being a mature adult looks like verse three. Verse three, keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as, as it's written in the law of Moses. That is, David is saying, my charge is the same as the Lord your God's charge to you, Solomon, and to you, Sid. Obey God's ways, his words, and Moses' law about how to live life. And before we rightly get overwhelmed with the law of Moses, which is 613 different commandments, um, we need to focus on the fact that Jesus condenses these, two, these 613 into two in the New Testament, hopefully. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. And so the author and pastor, Ralph Davis, summarizes what David says well here. 
he writes this, David's point is true stability comes through obedience to the Lord's commands. True stability in life comes through obedience to the Lord's commands. And that is so counterintuitive, but also I wanna push on us a little bit here. The force of these last words can get muted. You can think, of course the preacher says that. <laughs> of course the Bible on a churchy Sunday morning says that, <laughs> okay? That's why it's helpful to remind ourselves of this scene. This is a real life dying man who has lived a wildly up and down life, if you've been with us or you've read this passage of scripture. And he's speaking to his real son at his bedside who is listening through his tears. And David is using his last breaths to tell someone he loves the secret to a good life. And David's advice matches up with so many men and women before and after him, Joseph and Moses and Joshua and all the amazing men and women in Hebrews chapter 11 and church history up to the present day. True stability comes through obedience to the Lord's commands. It's also helpful to remind us ourselves of how different this is from the advice that we expect to hear or that we'd expect ourselves to say in David's situation. Most of us would expect some version of, remember Solly, Life is short. Whatever you do, you must do what makes you happy. And as I said earlier, this cultural command is highly self-involved and likely impossible. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to the experts. Here's a quote from the Journal of Positive Psychology. Positive psychology, okay? Happiness without meaning characterizes a relatively shallow, self-absorbed, or even selfish life in which things go well, needs and desires are easily satisfied, and difficult or taxing entanglements are avoided. That's a journal of positive psychology. Okay, so you're saying maybe per pursuing just personal happiness is not um, for me. Maybe that gets overly self-preoccupying. I'm gonna pursue my happiness and other people's happiness. Then the problem's solved, right? But then you have the issue of, uh, and by the way, no, and because you have the issue of what's at stake when you pursue happiness. Okay, and this is from uh, one of the wisest experts we have, Viktor Frankl, in a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He's a psychoanalyst and a survivor of the Holocaust. He writes in his book, it is the very pursuit of happiness that thwarts happiness. It's the very pursuit of happiness that thwarts happiness. Or more simply, if you aim at happiness, you're gonna miss it every single time. Happiness is a side effect. It's a benefit of a living for a bigger meaning, like God and his ways. And then there's the issue, how do you measure happiness? How do I know I'm happy, right? How happy am I? Is it a feeling scale from one to 10? Is it my comparison to other real live or social media people? In his best-selling book, Sapiens, the Israeli historian Yuval Harari makes the case that happiness is actually nearly impossible to measure. Whether it's a scale of internal well-being, our expectations versus reality, pleasant bodily sensations from, from chemicals like serotonin or oxytocin, finding any popular right now cause to be a part of, if we base our happiness on inner feelings or outer circumstances, that happiness only lasts as long as those conditions hold. Does that make sense? So 
your happiness, my happiness, can get wrecked by mood swings, by sustained moods, if it's internal. And if it's external, it can get wrecked by, I don't know, say, a, a pandemic for, say, two years or more now at this point. But through David's last words to Solomon, God is giving us words to live by, a purpose that aims at loving God and loving others, that gives us true personal stability. Happiness is a side benefit, not a precondition for living well. Verse three tells us ordinarily, but not always, ordinarily walking in God's ways means we prosper in all that we do and wherever we turn. And in verse four adds that obeying God's law of love makes us good leaders good parents, good moms and dads, good bosses and managers, good mentors and friends and captains. In, in Solomon's case, a good king in ancient Israel. But maybe you're thinking, okay, I get it. Do what makes you happy, impossible. But so are all 613 laws of Moses said to do, right? It's still impossible even when Jesus condenses it down. Have you tried recently, Sid, to like live for God with everything you've got inside? How'd that go for you? I love the way that another famous concentration camp survivor, Corey Tenboom, puts this. Uh, she has this impersonal, she works on her worry. She says, I don't want to worry anymore. And so she has this personal struggle and she says this about her personal struggle with worry. I tried fear not as an act of obedience it was about as successful as trying to kill a lion with a toy gun. <laughs> but thankfully, Corey Tenboom doesn't leave us there. She explains a better, more possible way, which I think is really beautiful. First, you ask for forgiveness. Then you accept the cleansing blood of Jesus. And then finally, you need to let the go this God fill you with your Holy Spirit and act out of that. That is, we can't obey without taking our actions through the cross of Christ in prayer. Does that make sense? You are not going to be able to do it day in and day out unless you do business with Jesus' forgiveness and his power by his spirit. So many of us, so often at the time, have these problems in our life, right? We have fear or lust or the fact that we're trying to, live, like, we're trying to like work a 24-7 PR campaign to make people like us. And we try to fix those problems in our own strength, but you and I cannot do that. We need Jesus' forgiveness and the Spirit's power. I love the way that the English pastor William Temple puts it, right? He once said this, he's someone, he said, asking me to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus, is like asking me to write a play like William Shakespeare. I can't. <laughs> I can't unless the spirit of Shakespeare came and lived inside of me. Then I could write Hamlet or King Lear. It's the same with obeying God. I can't unless the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus came and lived inside of me. Then I could live like Jesus. And it's worth pausing to consider that as we believe in Jesus, Jesus' Spirit comes and lives inside of us and that nothing is impossible with God. But God through David is not just changing us, He's not saying just charging us to be more godly, men and women more mature by obeying his word. He's also charging us to be wise, to deal decisively with the good and evil in our world. 
And to do this, our second and final point, we don't just need Jesus' strength, we need him as our goal in life. At first, when we read verses five through nine of our passage, I don't know if you felt this when you heard it, you can't help but feel a little bit taken aback, right? You kind of go, it seems like David's rattling off a deathbed hit list, isn't he? Like all these people that did him wrong, you go get him, Solly, right? But wisdom requires what the New Old Testament calls judgment. And we have a misconception of what the Old Testament means by judgment. Judgment primarily involves discerning between good and evil. And based on that discernment, doing justice. That is rewarding and reinforcing the good and curbing and punishing the evil. And so in the New Testament, Jesus takes this up and he tells his followers, be harmless as doves, obey God's ways of love. But he also adds, be wise as serpents, deal decisively with good, but especially with evil. And there is also the sense in verses five through nine that he's speaking less generally to our kind of character and he's speaking more specifically to wisdom as a life skill, to acquiring life skills, right? And so we need to know how to discern between good and evil in this world, to do justice in the many different roles that we all play in life, right? In our careers, in our parenting, in our schooling, in our voting, in our families, in our churches, in our neighborhoods. And so David is giving Solomon concrete examples of wisdom from his life for David to, for, excuse me, for Solomon to apply it in his life as role as king. And David does this by looking backwards at his own life in order to look forward at Solomon's life. And so David looks back with regrets aplenty. And he looks forward to Solomon and his life. And he looks at regret with Joab, <laughs> who often disobeyed David and then murdered his personal and military rivals in cold blood in peacetime. And David is telling Solomon, yeah, hey, Joab is a dangerous, unhinged man who does not listen, and he solves his problems with violence. Maybe you need to watch out for him and deal with him wisely, <laughs> okay? Then you have Shammai. David's advice for Shammai is to eliminate his threat. Yes, he cursed David, and David's probably hurting from that, but it's less about settling old scores and more about that Shammai has the potential to be an uprising. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the same tribe as King Saul, the, Saul before, the, sorry, the king before David. And he also has the potential to lead all of the northern tribes in rebellion against Solomon. But wisdom is not just curbing and punishing evil. It's also rewarding and reinforcing good. And we see this in verse 7. David highlights Barzillai the Gileadite and his steadfast loyalty and asks Solomon to care for Barzillai's sons, for them to be treated as royalty. And so with all these pieces of advice still ringing in our ears, verses 10 through 12 tells us David died in Jerusalem after 40 years as king. And Solomon sat on the throne of David and his kingdom was firmly established. And if you read on in chapter two of, verse, of first Kings, you'll see how Solomon firmly established his kingdom, God's kingdom, where David had passively let all of these evil, evils like kind of gather and happen like murder and rape and rebellion and let them go unpunished, Solomon acts decisively, but also with proper restraint. He acts swiftly when he has to. He holds to his word even when people cross his word. In the case even of his brother, Adonijah, who has king-making ambitions after Solomon's warned him, Solomon comes back to him and has to have him taken care of. He's executed. 
That's the fourth and final son of David, by the way, that's, that's killed for David's sin against Uriah. And then you think about what happened to the crafty Joab, right, who hides behind religion, or foolish Shimei, who lacks impulse control. Solomon's taking care of business. And this is the question. Where does your mind go when you think of what it means to be dealing wisely in your life and your relationships? Where do you and I need decisive action and proper restraint? Where do we need wisdom in our lives? What has experience taught us about needing to give consequences with children over and over again? Or what has experience taught us about not letting that client break the rules and then ask for more and pay less? Or what has experience taught us about not sharing our ideas with colleagues that take our ideas? Or group projects as a student? Or what do we know and need to trust? What does it look like to be wise and actually open up more to people that can help us, not less? And my guess is if we're honest about um, this conversation about wisdom, and what, it, what our relationships feel like, uh, you know, parents and siblings, uh, coworkers, students, friends, this could just feel so, so heavy. <laughs> God knows that. And Solomon felt that way too, by the way. And this is why just two, cha- two chapters later in 1 Kings chapter three, God appears to Solomon in a dream. And he tells him, ask what I shall give you. And of all the possible things he could have asked for, money, fame, fortune, happiness, do you know what Solomon asked for? Solomon, still feeling the heavy weight of life and death, good and evil, Solomon asked God for his God's wisdom. And what's more, do you know that God already gave us that wisdom before we even asked for it? Isn't that amazing? God didn't just appear in a dream. He appeared in real life. In Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, God became flesh and he dwelled among us. And according to 1 Corinthians, God, Christ is the power of God, but he's also not just, he's not just the power of God, he's the wisdom of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. So you see, wisdom isn't just a set of principles that we apply. Wisdom isn't just a set of uh, facts that we memorize. Wisdom is a person, a person named Jesus of Nazareth. And so we get wise by relating with him. And as we draw near to him time and time again, and we ask for wisdom, strength, and obedience again, and again, Christ is there in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, according to Colossians chapter 2. So in his chapter about how really difficult it is to measure happiness, uh, Yuval Harari can't help himself. He's kind of just dismissing all these different ideas of what happiness is. And he's been so objective for so much of the book, but in Sapiens at the very end in this chapter, he kind of tips his hand. He tips his hand about what he really believes. And he says, here's his, his, his recommendation, Buddhism. Buddha recommends, Buddha's recommendation was not to, was to stop not only the pursuit of external achievements, so don't just stop external achievements, but also stop the pursuit of inner, inner feelings. And so on his deathbed, like King David, the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, 
His last words were, behold, O monks, this is my advice to you. All component things of this world are changeable. They are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own salvation. A better translation of that in the Pali is strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing. Work hard to gain your salvation. Strive without ceasing. Sid, just stop it. Stop it. Stop feeling. Stop wanting. Stop trying to change your circumstances. Stop trying to be successful. Stop just wanting to be happy. But you know what the Christ's last words before his death were? You know what Jesus said on the cross as he died, his last words? It is finished. It is finished. Jesus says, here's how salvation works. I worked hard to gain your salvation and I'm about to die to give you my everything. All my maturity, all my strength, all my wisdom, and even my happiness. So you can just rest. You get to rest in me. And out of that rest, yes, you can strive, but please strive with ceasing because you've got nothing to prove to no one. You're not a disappointment. You're my pride and joy. It is finished. Jesus said that on the cross and he meant it. And we get to live out of that truth. Thankful to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words to us. Thank you for the opportunity to meditate on your words uh, with us um, and for us. And I pray that you would encourage us by them, Jesus. Would you be precious and sweet and close to us as we wrestle with uh, the beginning of another year at school or another year of fall. Um, and I pray that you would remind us of the goal of life. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.